Tonight's reading is Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18, which the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the snake deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is God's word. Uh, good evening. If you don't met, my name is uh, Matt Fuller. We're starting in a topical four. Uh, so unusually break our habit, I guess, of working our way through books of the Bible uh, and thinking topically on this topic for four weeks. Um, the danger with something like that is it's really one sermon in four parts, um, and so it really does all fit together. But let's see how we uh, make a start uh, this evening. Let me pray. Hey, great God and Father, here again we come to issues which are, are sensitive and uh, upon which uh, all of us here will have our own personal experience, perhaps church uh, experience, which may be good, may be damaging. There will be a, a temptation for all of us to pour all sorts of background and baggage into what the Bible says. Father, help us, please. Help us to work out these issues together as a church family. Help us to do so sat under the Scriptures. Help us to do so because you're a good God. You're a kind Father. You instruct us how to live and relate to one another for our own benefit. So, Father, please, in many ways, as Jules has expressed it, would we be those listening to your words, your words in the Scriptures, more than the voices from our backgrounds, the voices in our culture? Father, we pray it for the honor of your name and our good. Amen. So here's a headline that uh, um, you'd have seen in one form or another over the past few months. Did you see that um, it's a couple of months or six weeks or something ago now, over six million people flee Ukraine. Obviously, that number's gone up. 90% of them are women and children, says the UN. 90% of refugees who have left the country are women and children. Ukrainian men age 18 to 60, they're not allowed to leave because they're eligible for military service. Now, what's your gut instinct when you read that? Men and women, you should leave the country. Excuse me, women and children, you should leave the country. Men, you must stay behind and fight. Is that right? Is it sexist? Does a bit of righteous anger rise up within you and say, how disgusting that the women are fleeing. The men should take the children. The women should fight. Or at least 50-50. It was actually um, a friend who, uh, she would describe herself as a Scandinavian feminist. Um, that's where she was brought up said, so, you know, I read that stat and thought, I should be annoyed at that. I should be annoyed that men and women are operating differently, given my upbringing. But deep down, I know that's right. And I can't work out why. I just know that that's right. What do you think? Alongside that... I didn't see any publication, tweet, saying that that was disgusting, 
It just sort of seemed to pass without comment. Apart from there was one US CBS News, I don't know if you picked it up, one transgender uh, woman said, I want to leave the country. And the government said, you're a man, you stay and fight. And that was held up as disgusting, that they were made to stay and fight when they identified as a woman. Is that right? We don't have to go very far, do we, before it gets a bit complicated <laughs> and we get a little bit nervous. Oh, no, what am I meant to think? What, what's, the, what's the correct answer? Well, that's why we're turning to the Scriptures to try and help out. What is a woman? What is a man? It's a long time ago now. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir, who, of course, inspired second-wave feminism, famously declared, declared, one is not born but becomes a woman. Now, of course, she was talking about socialization, that women are pushed into a certain box. She was not talking about transgender uh, philosophy. But I guess that's slightly what it's become. There's a sense, of course, today in which some choose to take it that way. There's nothing inherent to being male or female. You choose. So it seemed like a, it seemed like about time to spend a month topically on the issue of men and women in the Bible and how in church they complement one another. Spend a bit more time on why we're doing this next week, actually. Um, but how men and women complement one another in church. So these funny labels get used. I just don't like the labels, but you may have come across them. We're thinking about the idea of complementarianism, which very simply is the idea that God made men and women equal and distinctive. Equal in value and dignity, and yet distinctive in some particular responsibilities and roles. Equal and yet distinctive. That is generally held up as complementarian. It's sometimes contrasted with egalitarianism. I don't, the labels are pretty hopeless, it seems to me, because everyone really wants to say that in a Christian setting that men and women are equal, and everyone wants to say they complement one another. But anyway. If you wanted a title or a label, I think... Here at CCM would be gentle complementarians if you wanted a label. I'm not sure it actually does you much good. But we are thinking topically. Uh, there's always a danger you do a topical series when you focus on one thing. As I say, because the series is cumulative, you actually will not know what I think on these issues until the end of the fourth sermon. So uh, next week, um, which is brilliant for me as a caveat, of course, um, but it is also true. We're building a picture cumulatively. So we will do Q&A, but not tonight. We'll do it in, in, in subsequent weeks. There's a danger, or not a danger, I think it's probably inevitable that on their own, each one of these four sermons is unbalanced on their own, because I'm trying to, trying to stay in one passage as much as possible. So they'll be unbalanced on their own, but cumulatively, hopefully put together a picture. Conscious, of course, as we come to a topic such as this, there are lots of different opinions in the room. Uh, again, many from our, our personal history, of how we've experienced being a man or, or a woman. For some, from our previous church experience, what it's looked like there. 
And I think probably all of us will, will need to take a pause at some point and check that what we're hearing is the same as what someone else is saying, because those could very easily on this issue be different. I take it also that some here would have had, for want of a better term, a, a traditional upbringing. I don't mean biblical. I mean traditional upbringing in terms of gender roles and seeing men do this and women do that in their family and had a happy experience and think that's good. That's just how you were brought up, some here. Others here, no doubt because of your personal or church backgrounds, are nervous, anxious that the church can be sexist. The church can be a place where women are prevented from fulfilling their gifting. I imagine that there's some who have been treated very badly in other churches, I presume, in a group like this. And to spend a month on this, is that right? Well, there's a sense in which the roles of men and women in church, it's not a first-order issue. No one's salvation depends, I don't think, upon how you articulate how men and women relate in a church. Not obviously so. And yet, it's an issue that affects some people very deeply indeed. <laughs> so it's a curious as a topic because it's sort of not that important. And yet for some people, it's massive. I'm conscious of that as well. My own hope and prayer in uh, preparing for this little block is that... Um, as a church family, we can avoid stridency, perhaps, in how we express our opinions, um, a generosity in how we listen to one another, taking time to understand. I'd love to see us work this out together under the Scriptures. Because there's also a sense, in, no matter where you land theologically, what matters most of all is how it actually gets worked out in practice, how it's embodied in a church community. That's absolutely key. So we start now then in Genesis 1 to 3. It's not as explicit as many New Testament passages on um, uh, distinctive roles of men and women, but it is foundational. There's a danger tonight, I just frustrate you and raise more questions because we're just going to put a few foundational blocks in place and not actually draw very many conclusions at all uh, tonight. So just to manage expectations uh, a little bit, we won't get very far. But what we're going to say, we look at these three chapters, we're going to skim over them, they're not, not in detail. If you want to, you know, Genesis 1 to 3, I think there's a series of 12 sermons on these uh, done a few years ago. We're doing them all in one sermon um, tonight, topically. So bear that in mind. But we're going to look at it like this. There are two complementary equals, men and women, there are two complementary equals. There are two failures in the partnership in Genesis 3, and we'll draw a couple of tentative conclusions tonight, okay? That's all we're going to do. Two complementary equals, two failures in the partnership, and then a couple of implications. First then, skimming over uh, chapters one and two, men and women are two complementary equals. Now, 
if you've been a Christian a while, you know that, that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they're two parallel accounts of creation. They're designed to, uh, to complement one another, bring out slightly different things. Genesis chapter 1, the creation of male and female towards the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 comes after a long list of other complementary pairs. It's obvious that there's pairs, so we may have them. We're not going to go through it, but you know in the creation story there's heaven and earth. There's light and darkness. There's night and day. There's dry land. There's sea. There's male. There's female is the culmination of the list. But straight away in that, how Genesis 1 is established, you don't have one without the other. Heaven needs earth as a complement. Light needs darkness for it to be seen. You need to pull apart the dry land and the sea for them to be distinctive. Complementary pairs are introduced all the way in Genesis chapter 1, and then you get man and woman. They need one another. The actual creation of them comes uh, chapter 1, uh, let's get to verses, let me highlight verses 27 and 28. You finally get told that God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Both share a common task. And I wonder if you just try to draw it out in just verse 27, the sort of three parallel lines. God created, what did he create? Mankind, what was it like? In his own image. In the image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So do you see, what does the image of God look like in Genesis 1.27? In his image... In his image, male and female. In order for us to understand the nature of God, there needed to be male and female, both essential to complement the other. Both are necessary for us to understand a little bit of him. Chapter 2 is the parallel account. It goes into more detail then on the creation of man and woman. Uh, and it highlights numerous differences between them. I'm just going to skim through. You can ask any questions. But uh, let me run through uh, seven differences between men and women in chapter 2 that are just introduced. How they're made is a bit different. So the man is made from the dust of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being the woman is made from man. Chapter 2, verse 21. Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman. So how they're made is different. When they're made is different. Not simultaneously, the man first, the woman second. Where they're made, he is made outside the garden. Chapter 2, verse 7. She's made inside the garden. Drawing no conclusions on that. And then their responsibilities are slightly different. Let me read uh, from verse 15 to 17 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it from it, you'll certainly die. So man is given responsibility for the garden before the creation of the woman. She's not there. He's given responsibility for keeping God's law. 
before the creation of the woman. Adam, man, you must not eat from this tree. He's given the responsibility primarily for creating the new family. Chapter 2, verse 24, the man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. That's what's emphasized. He takes the lead, the initiative in that. And then seventh and last, perhaps the most striking, is chapter 2, verse 18. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. A helper, literally like opposite I quite like the, sometimes gets translated, necessary ally. I'll make a necessary ally for him, but a helper, a helper for him. You may well have heard before that the Hebrew word, um, it's commonly used of God in the Old Testament. God is a helper. He provides resources that Israel does not have. Now, that is an important parallel, okay? God is a helper and can do things that humanity cannot do. And the woman is a helper and can do things the man cannot do. In that sense, helper. So you need to hear that one rightly. So it's not, um, oh, can you help me paint a room? Can you help me paint the kitchen? It would take me four hours, but if you help me, it'll take two hours. I mean, it's nice to have some help, but you don't really need it. Not that. Can you help me paint the kitchen? You've got the brushes, I've got the paints. Together we can do something. Without, one without the other, we're stuffed. That sort of helper. Resource, the man is given resources that he doesn't have in the woman. They complement one another. So just at this point, two little conclusions uh, at this point. The, the first is this. The man and the woman are given the task of ruling the earth... Together, they cannot do this task of ruling without the other. To get, they have to do it together. And yet alongside that second thing, Genesis 2 stresses that the man has a responsibility for this task in a way the woman does not. He has to take the lead in Trusting the word of God, which is given to him, communicating it to her, obeying the word of God. There is a responsibility given to him that isn't given to her. So straight away, there is absolute equality of status, essential need for the other, one without the other, light without dark is meaningless. Man and woman together, you've got to have them both. And yet... The man is given a responsibility that the woman is not. Now, straight away, as soon as we hear something like that, that's when the alarm bells go off. That's not, that's not a quality, then, is it? It's not, it's just, you know, that's not a quality. Well, let me give you just a secular comment on that. So Stephen Pinker, he's the sort of Harvard academic, public philosopher, uh, likes to say one or two controversial things. But um, I, I just thought striking his observation. Why are people so afraid of the idea that the minds of men and women are not identical in every respect? Because overwhelmingly now in um, psychology, the, 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 the academic approach is men and women's brains are different, and we need to recognize that to treat people effectively. 
that is becoming a consensus academically. Just in the same way men and women's bodies are, are different, so you, you want to treat them a bit differently, um, you know, some cases. So big observes, look, the fear, of course, is that different implies unequal, that if the sexes differed in any way, that men would have to be better, more dominant, or more fun. But why is that? In so many different arenas, we say, difference, right? You've got blue eyes, I've got brown eyes. I don't get stressed about it. I don't have a fight about it. But in this arena, as soon as you say, this is just a secular commentator, as soon as you say different, people go crazy. Different doesn't mean unequal. Different doesn't mean unfair. Oh, in terms of men and women, of course, it has done at points in history. And that's why the alarm bells go off, I presume. Because there has been, in the past, abuse. But God's creation is very good, initially. Our gendered relationships, the idea that men and women are equal and yet distinctive, that is very good, according to the Scriptures. It's equality, but not identical responsibility, and that's very good, according to the Bible. God's design then was for two complementary equals. You've got to have both. Secondly, just briefly then, briefly jumping into Genesis chapter 3, there are two failures in the partnership in Genesis chapter 3, two failures. And now the man and the woman fail. Obviously, they're both cursed along with the snake, the serpent, Satan. The most explicit statement is chapter 3 and verse 17. This is where it's most obvious what's gone wrong. Chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground and cursed is your work. Why is Adam cursed? Because he listened to his wife and disobeyed God in doing so. That is the cause of the curse upon the man. He'd received God's law. He was meant to teach it to Eve, but he failed to lead and he failed to teach as he was meant to. That's the most explicit statement. You listened when you should have led. Now, there are lots of other pointers towards that. I won't go through them all, but... um, some of the most obvious ones. Um, the dialogue between the woman and the snake in uh, chapter 3, 1 to 6. We won't read it all again. But there's this dialogue, this discussion goes on between uh, the snake, Satan, and the woman. Uh, where's the man? Well, he's just there. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and desiring to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and so she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. So all the time while Satan is having this conversation with Eve, Adam is there doing nothing, saying nothing, not protecting her, not saying, but God has told us, not leading in the way he'd been given responsibility to do. Uh, And then just in verse 8 of chapter 3, 
uh, they've bogged it, uh, Adam and Eve. And so they're now walking in the garden, verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, not to them. You see verse 8, the man and his wife. They, they, but the Lord God said to the man, where are you? Because he's responsible because God given him responsibility for listening, for obeying, for giving a lead. I'll pause there. But Genesis chapter 3, then, what are, what are the two failures? Well, super explicit. The man fails to lead. He fails to teach. By implication, the woman doesn't help him lead. Not as explicit, but that seems to be the implication. Comes out also the difference a little bit, I guess, in, in the, the ways they're cursed. They are cursed differently, the man and the woman. So um, when you get to them, it, for the woman, it's the area of childbirth that is cursed. For the man, it's working in the garden that is cursed. Now, don't run too far ahead. <laughs> there is something here about the man's work and there is something here about the woman's nurturing we'll return to it in later weeks don't run too far ahead but there's something there in the different arenas in which they're cursed there's some sense in which uh, the man builds a house the woman is a house or a home literally for nine months. There is something in the potentiality of being a mother, potentiality that shapes what it means to be a woman. There is something in the potentiality of being a father that has implications for what it is to be a man. Don't run too far ahead, okay? I've just, there's something here that gets traced out later in the scriptures. So what are the two failures then? Uh, the man fails to lead, teach. By implication, the woman doesn't help him lead. Two conclusions, briefly, and then we're done for this evening. And I leave you with more questions than you entered into the room, I think. First then, here's the major one. Neither blur nor or have women, uh, men and women oppose. So in men and, male and female, the two sexes, don't blur them and don't oppose them. And I'm going to ask you to turn on to, uh, and in a moment, do one cross-reference, but why not turn on um, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is page 1186. We don't want to blur the differences between men and women and nor have them oppose one another. So let me, I mean, this is slightly jumping ahead. Uh, but here are two, two ways we could fail, two ways to get this wrong, okay? So we want to be in between these two mistakes. One, we could ignore what God says about this responsible leadership role that lands upon the man in some settings. So just completely to ignore what God says about the right leadership of men 
That would be one way of failing. The other side would be to ignore what the Bible and God says about the necessary ministry of women because the woman is a helper and the man cannot operate without. And so let me be super clear. The contribution of women to church ministry, it's not just useful or just important. The nature of these complementary pairs means it's essential. The world needs to hear the gospel through men and women working together. The church needs to be a picture of men and women help working together. You need them both. Let me just turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here you get an interesting comparison. Paul is describing his ministry. Okay? He's a man, obviously, Paul, and um, a pretty heroic one. If you know anything about the New Testament, he, he's gung-ho. He's, you know, he gives his life over and over again. He's a brave man, and yet he's content to describe himself in these terms or thinks it's important. He's describing his ministry amongst the church in um, Thessaloniki. And he can say this, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among all you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Two things on that. One, Paul is quite happy to associate some traits with being a mother and some traits with being a father. So he's quite happy to say nursing, caring language. That's more motherly. And urging, exhorting, comfort, exhort, you translate how you will. Urging, exhorting language, that's more fatherly. He doesn't gulp and say, oh, golly, I'm going to get shot down on Twitter for saying this. But it's a bit more like a mum to nurse and um, care. And it's a bit more like a dad to exhort and urge. He's quite content to sort of, that's a bit more normal for a dad and that's a bit normal for a mum. And yet, secondly, he says, I'm both. <laughs> he's, he's not like, men, we do this and we don't do that. And women, you do this and you don't do that. He doesn't do any sort of caricature. He doesn't sort of make it completely binary. There's not one way of being a man and one way of being a woman. He says, look, it's a bit more feminine to do this and a bit more man masculine to do this. And uh, I do both. So, again, we want to hold on to both those truths. There's something a bit more masculine about a pattern. There's something a bit more feminine about a certain pattern. But don't push them to their binary extremes. Because a godly man will demonstrate feminine traits as well, at times, appropriately. And a godly woman will demonstrate mas masculine traits as, as well, at times, appropriately. But there's something a bit more female and there's something a bit more male. We're both. Both are there. So let's not blur what it means to be a man or a woman. Make them interchangeable. But let's not push them to extremes and certainly let's not oppose them. They're two complementary equals, man and woman. Now the implications of church we'll see in later weeks. 
But um, you've got to hold on to this language. The Bible doesn't make sense without this language. And sometimes it's a bit hard and you have to put yourself into the, it's someone else's shoes. You know, so for, for blokes, it's a bit weird. You know, it's just a bit weird. You know, Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, is the groom and the church is the bride. And most blokes go, ooh, I'm a bride. Bit weird, but I can sort of get my head around it. Okay, you can do that. And if you say, oh, well, I refuse to say I'm the bride. I just, re- I'm, I refuse. I refuse to use that language. Well, then you've, I don't even know what you are. I mean, I don't know, how, I don't know what relationship you have to Jesus because it's such an important metaphor in the Bible. And you've got to hold on to the language, the, 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 the sex, the, the gendered language in the scriptures. It doesn't make sense. And, and similarly, on the other side, um, uh, repeatedly in the New Testament, uh, believers are described as sons. Sons. And the NIV gets a bit embarrassed by that, to be honest, and often says children when it says sons or sons and daughters. Now, if you're a woman, it's perfectly sensible and course to call yourself a daughter of God. Of course it is. You're a child of God. Of course it is. But you lose something if you lose sons, because in the first century, the son is the one who inherits everything. The firstborn son gets everything. And so when the Bible, the New Testament says, um, you, Rachel, you, Leah, are the f- you're a son, it means you get everything that Jesus has. And it makes no sense if you, oh, I refuse to use that language. Sex, you know, just discriminatory language. Sometimes we've just got to get over ourselves and our current 21st century milieu to understand what the Bible's actually teaching us and how wonderful it is. We just... Ah, I'm jumping ahead. Neither blur nor oppose. Let me finish, end on this. Leadership has to be defined by service. So as soon as this distinction is introduced, men and women absolutely essential to complement one another, equal in status. But the, the, the man in Genesis 1 is, is, given into, is given a little more responsibility, and that, has some, that plays out in some sense in marriage, in some sense in the church. We'll come to those. The alarm bells start to go off again. But much less so if we allow leadership to be defined biblically. We have to fight against worldly definitions of leadership, which is selfish. So let me remind you briefly as we finish. Turn it up or it'll appear on the screen. Matthew chapter 20. appears elsewhere, but Matthew chapter 20. The context is the... um, Uh, the mother of James and John, the disciples, say to Jesus, can my sons be in charge? I've got two boys, James and John. Can they sit on your right hand and left hand in glory? That'd be ace, because then I'm like the top mom of the year. Love it. Um, And Jesus says, no. Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and our high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So when you hear the word, and when I use the word that the man has a greater responsibility, I mean he has a greater responsibility to die. 
I mean, he has more obligation upon him to serve. I mean, he is the one who takes the lead in sacrificing. That's what the Bible means by a greater responsibility, a primary leadership, the leadership of sacrificing, of 90% of women and of refugees should be women and children, the men stand fight, and the Bible says, correct. That, the reason why somewhere for most of us that resonates and we think, oh, yeah, that is a bit weird, but it's kind of right, is because it's hard woven into us from the creation. Leadership is service. Leadership is I sacrifice for your good. And so if you, of course, want to know what it means to lead, it's you look to Jesus. So within this partnership of equals, yes, the man has the primary responsibility to lead, which means to sacrifice. He has the primary responsibility to serve and take a lead in doing that. So before we run ahead, and before you run ahead perhaps in your heads with the implications of what Genesis 1 to 3 points towards, yet greater responsibility is given to man in certain roles, not in everything, in certain defined roles in the Scriptures. But fundamentally, it's to sacrifice, to lead by giving, to lead by serving. And that's why in all these conversations, you have to come back to, to the Savior, to Jesus, who came not to, excuse me, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That is leadership. There's something within us that knows it's true. There's something within us that sees the headline of men staying and fighting in Ukraine and we say, yeah. Because there is a difference. Don't blur the difference between men and women. Don't oppose them. Don't overstate it. Don't make it binary. But it is a good gift that God has given us two sexes to complement one another. A great God and Father, again, I'm fully conscious that people uh, come to this topic, these issues, with a variety of backgrounds, with a whole variety of models in their families, in previous churches, and some of what we've seen and experienced is really good, and we're thankful for it, and some of what we've seen and experienced is terrible, and we want to run away from it, and rightly so. Father, help us to be kind in the conversations we have. Help us to sit under the scriptures together as we work this out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.